Good morning, Cornerstone guests. If you uh, brought a Bible with you this morning, then it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bible to the book of Psalms, where we will be in Psalm chapter 8. If you didn't bring a Bible with you to church today, there's one provided for you in the pew that's ahead of you. And we'll be on page 450 of the pew Bible, Psalm chapter 8. We're back in the series that we're calling Songs of Jesus. Songs of Jesus. We're taking one psalm a week in the, the month of January, working our way through five different psalms this month. We're calling the series Songs of Jesus because these are, the, the, the psalms are songs, poems about the Lord Jesus. And we're also calling it Songs of Jesus because these are songs that Jesus sang. Matthew chapter 26 tells us that Jesus sang poems. So for those of you macho types who are like, poetry's for sissies, you're going to have to take that up with the Lord Jesus. So good luck with that. Psalm chapter 8. Let's go ahead and read, and then uh, we're going to work verse by verse through this psalm. We should be 45 minutes or so. Good to have you in church. Psalm chapter 8. O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have set him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father and Lord, how majestic, how marvelous, how wonderful is your name in all the earth. Lord, send your spirit to open our eyes that we may see the marvels, that we may rejoice in the majesty that we may be lifted up as we gaze upon the wonders that is God. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would use me, your unworthy servant, to speak truthfully and accurately and boldly according to your word. Should there be some marvel in this wonderful psalm that I have neglected to see, bring it to my eyes. cause your people to rejoice in the God who made them, who cares for them, 
who is mindful of them. Do this for your son's sake. Amen. I have three brothers and sisters, or three brothers and one sister, and uh, our families have had children and have gotten to the size that we can't all hang out at my parents' house during Christmas and holiday get-togethers. So for the last, uh, what is it, four years, I think, mom and dad have rented a cabin and we go there for two nights and we hang out together around Christmas time and we exchange gifts and spend a couple of days together just getting to know one another, catching up over the previous year. Now I understand for some of you, two days pent up in a cabin with your siblings might be considered torture, uh, but it isn't for us. We have a good family and uh, we get along fairly well. In, in our family, it is a good thing, and in our family, we, there's a, most subjects are, you know, we, there's hardly a subject that's off, off, off you know, we can, we can talk about just about anything, you know, and uh, we talk about politics, and we disagree, and we talk about religion, and we disagree, and we, di- we talk about a whole host of things. Well, this year, uh, I overheard my brothers having a conversation about aliens, What, you guys didn't talk about aliens at your Christmas get-together this year? And I don't know how the conversation got started, to be honest with you. I didn't really hear the beginning, but I suppose it landed on aliens because they were discussing the size of the universe. And that's usually how that conversation gets started. The universe is big, which is almost a ludicrous statement. Big doesn't even begin to describe the size of our universe. Our sun is one of an estimated one billion trillion other suns. A billion trillion. That's a made up number. That, that's not a real number. That's like what little kids call a bajillion. That's the way smart, smart people say bajillion. A billion trillion. That's not even a real number. And they say there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on the earth. Think about that. They also say that there are more atoms inside one granule of sand than there are stars in the universe. This, they, I think they make these things up. That doesn't, my brain hurts when I think about things like that. But the universe is really, really big. And what's crazier than that, I think, is that it's, with a bajillion stars, it's also mostly empty. It's very, very empty. Imagine if our sun in our solar system was the size of a tennis ball. Okay, just shrink it down to the size of a tennis ball. It would be in my hand, a tennis ball. Which means the earth would be about the size of, of, a, of a grain of sand. And it would be about 30 feet away in orbit. Okay, so that would be, I don't know, to those double doors or something. So the size of the sun... It's a tennis ball. The earth is over there. The distance from this tennis ball-sized sun to the next nearest star would be Wyoming. That's how, and everything in between, empty. That's why they call it space. It's empty. It's really, really, really big and really, really, really empty. 
So as my brothers were discussing the size of the universe and comparing the size to our infinitesimal little planet, inevitably the, the mind wonders, aliens, we can't be alone in this vast universe. I think it's natural to look at the night sky and wonder that. But I wonder if that's not the wrong question. About 3,000 years ago, there was a man named David. And he was sitting under those same stars and gazing at that same moon. And his question was a little different. What must the one be like who made all this? And it moved him to poetry. And he wonders at the majesty of the God who created this. If the universe is this wonderful, what must its creator be like? So David then proceeds to give us four elements of the incredible majesty of this creator God. Four marvels, if you will, of God's majesty. So let's follow the psalmist through Psalm 8 and see if our hearts don't sing as his did so long ago. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This poem is unique. And that it begins and ends with the same phrase, like the chorus to a song. But it's also unique in that it begins with a name. Not just any name. The name. The name. God's proper name. It's the same name that God gave to Moses when Moses asked, Well, what do I call you? Means... I am that I am. The name of God means I am. He is the uncreated one, the eternal, the immortal, the one without beginning or end, the Lord over all, God. You may notice in your Bible, the word Lord there in verse 1 is in all caps. There's two, two times that word shows up in that verse. Our Lord, all caps, Lord, our Lord, the second Lord, not in all caps. Your Bible does this because the Psalms was written in the Hebrew language. It wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew. And in the Hebrew, there are two words for the word Lord. One is Adonai. It means Lord, means master or sovereign. The other Lord, the one that your Bible indicates with all capital letters, is the English translator's way of telling you, the English reader, this is God's proper name. The one he gave to Moses. It's in all caps. We usually pronounce it Yahweh or Jehovah, which is our best attempt at pronouncing it. We don't really know how it's pronounced, by the way. The Lord's name consists of four letters in the Hebrew language, four consonants, Okay, in the Hebrew, it's yud Hey vav Hey. So if you transliterate that into English, it'd be like Y-H-W-H. So Yahweh is the closest we've got. In the Old Testament, the, the, the Hebrew people, they, they considered God's name to be sacred and holy. And, and for fear of mis, mis, misusing it, they didn't pronounce it all that much. And so consequently, forgot how it sounded. And so here we are trying to put things together. And Yahweh is probably the best that we can come up with. David addresses this poem to Yahweh, to the Lord. 
And he makes, it moves him to a song. Prayers are addressed to God, and that's what David is doing. Our Lord, O Lord, our Lord, Yahweh, our sovereign. He looks at the heavens, and he begins to sing of God's majesty. He begins by saying, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There's something about staring into the heavens, which causes this warrior king to open his mouth in poetry to God. The name of God is majestic in all the earth. You see, whether you're looking through a telescope or a microscope, God has ordered the intricacy and the splendor of the created universe to cause us to see his majesty. When we wonder about the beauty of the mountains, when we gaze at the raw and untamed power of the seas, we look at the delicate complexities of the human body, we are not meant to stop there. Admiring creation for itself is to sell creation short. It's to sell yourself short. Actually, it's to sell science short. We are meant to see this labyrinth in the observable universe, this fragile and yet sturdy contingency of chemical bonds. And we are meant to wonder, like David, at the marvelous creator. We are meant to see this beauty and wonder, what must the one be like who made this? How majestic is your name in all the earth? So David begins to wonder. He begins to marvel at his glory. The first marvel. Verse 1. You have set your glory above the heavens. As glorious as the stars are in the night sky, as wonderful as those, those fascinating images that we receive from Hubble's telescope, our God's glory is beyond that. It's greater than that. It's above the heavens. As we stare at the stars, friends, don't stop at the stars. See beyond them. See the glory of the God who hung them. We are meant to see the glory of God beyond the heavens. God hung the stars in our night sky to cause us to worship. He set the stars in place and sent their light to the earth. He made the nighttime create a translucent atmosphere and gave us eyes in order to see them. Did you know that we, the, the human eye is only capable of seeing about 0.0035% of the electromagnetic spectrum? God gave us the ability to see the stars to create worship in us. Psalm 19 is the classic example. This is what the psalmist writes. Same guy who wrote Psalm 8. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. The stars, friends, carry a message. It's the same message we sang about a few moments ago. Glorious, glorious is our God. They proclaim to us, glorious is the one who made this. And I wonder if we're even listening. 
to look into the night sky and to wonder only about the stars and not about the gloriousness of the God who created those stars would be like going to the London Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra and and putting on noise-canceling headphones. You see the movement to the people with the bows on their violins, but you're not hearing the music. We are meant to look at the stars and hear them sing of the glory of their creator. God created a bajillion stars to describe his glory, to cause you and I to wonder what manner of God would create this. The galaxies tell us of his wonders. So the more we are pressed into understanding the majesty of the universe, the more we are meant to marvel and wonder about our God. He has set his glory above the heavens. David continues. The Lord's majestic methods in verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. It's a bit of a confusing verse, if I'm honest. Uh, Why would the psalmist go from God's glory beyond the stars to baby talk on the earth? What David seems to be marveling at is God's use of the weakest of the weakest of things to silence the strength of his enemies. God shows his strength through the weakest weaknesses, which actually proves him stronger, doesn't it? When we want to show ourselves strong, how do we do it? We We pound our chest, we yell, use loud words, cutting words, we hurt one another, we post workout selfies on Facebook, we show ourselves strong through our strength. When one nation wants to show its dominance over another nation, how does it do it? By showing its military might. But this is not how God shows his strength. He shows his strength through the weakness of the weakest of the weak. And he's always done it this way. He uses the weak to shame the strong. God told Israel, I chose you. This is Deuteronomy 7, I think. God said to Israel, I chose you. Not because you were many, but because you were few. Not because you were awesome, because you weren't. He's always worked this way. When the Massive Midianite army attacked. God told Gideon, you got too many men. Get rid of them. And God used 300 guys with trumpets and torches to destroy the Midianite army. God used musicians to tear down the walls of Jericho. God used a stone in the sling of a shepherd boy to kill a giant. God used, God would topple kings with a baby born in a manger. 
when the Lord Jesus made his way into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in Matthew chapter 21, the Bible says that blind people and lame people and children were there and the children were singing his praise. And those big, strong religious types, they were indignant. Shut them up, Jesus! You know what they're saying to you? And Jesus takes this very verse, friends, and he applies it to himself. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have perfected praise. He says, you guys don't get it. God always uses the he shows his strength by using the gugus and gagas of babies to show himself strong against his enemies. He uses the foolish things of the, uh, to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong. God will always work in a way that ensures he gets the glory so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is how God deals with evil, through weakness. The Lord overcame the greatest enemy of all, sin and death, not by swinging a sword, but by getting run through with one. Not by destroying his adversaries, but by getting destroyed by them. The Lord overcame death by dying on a cross. The Bible says that he overcame sin, not by killing sin, but by being killed by it, for it. The weakest whimper of a nursing child in the hands of Almighty God is stronger than the fiercest fortified enemy this world can offer. And that dear cornerstone is a marvel of God's majesty. The third way. The Lord's majestic condescension. Verse 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, David says, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? I picture David as a shepherd boy. He's sitting out in the fields with his flock, gazing up into the night sky. His heart is full of wonder and amazement and the majesty of God that's being revealed to him in the heavens. And his, his gaze falls down into his own hands. This is the work of your fingers. And what are these fingers? He marvels. What must the God be like who created all of this and yet still knows my name? tiny shepherd in a tiny town, in a tiny country, in a tiny planet, in the middle of nowhere. What is man? They are mindful of him. If the universe truly contains a billion trillion stars and God knows all of those stars by name, then what does it mean, Cornerstone? That he knows your name. What must the one be like who holds the galaxies in the palm of his hand and knows your name? What does it mean that he cares for you? 
That word care in verse 4, it means counted or considered. The old English translations use the word visited. They translate it, what is man that thou visitest him? It's the same word that was used of God when he visited Abraham's wife, Sarah. She couldn't conceive. And the Bible says, the Lord visited Sarah and opened her womb. He cared for her. So I ask you to marvel at the glory and majesty of a God who would care for you. Science has learned that earth is not the center of the universe. We've also learned that our sun is not the biggest star, not by far. We are a tiny solar system tucked away in a tiny galaxy in some nowhere part of this universe God made. And you, my dear snowflake, are one of seven billion on this planet. You tell me. What does it mean that the God of the universe, a God like that, knows you? Is mindful of you? What does it mean that that kind of God was with you when you were born? He was there when you took your first steps. He was there when you got your driver's license. He was with you when you said, I do. He was with you when it fell apart. He was with you when you said goodbye to your grandmother. He was with you when you lost your baby. What does it mean that God is mindful of you? What manner of God is this? And now I ask you to consider... Everything that God has created, every sun and moon and star and galaxy, fish, bird, every atom, every molecule, does exactly what God told it to do, without exception. Gravity has never once defied the law God created for it. The electron has never decided to stop being an electron. A whale in the deepest ocean is always going to be a whale in the deepest ocean and do exactly what a whale does. There's only one part of God's creation that would dare defy his commands. That's you and me. Human beings are the only part of God's creation that refuses to do what God made it to do. The rest of the universe knows who's God. It's only humans who want to be God. God created us for his glory and yet we seek our own God created us to worship him, and yet we worship everything but. God created us to love one another. And yet instead what we see is racism and war 
and murder and abortion and poverty and school shootings and car bombings and sex trafficking. It's only humans that want to be God. Our rebellion against our creator is nothing short of treason. And our God who is holy and just demands a penalty for that sin, for that disobedience. Treason against an infinite God deserves an infinite penalty. Your sin and my sin deserves an eternity separated from God in a place called hell. So what would this all-powerful, limitless one do with this tiny fraction of his creation that would dare defy him? Here's what he did. Something no one was expecting. He showed his majesty by leaving the glory above the heavens. By wrapping himself in human form. By becoming one of those hell-deserving sinners. Born of a virgin teenager in a nowhere town, in a nowhere nation, on a nowhere planet, in a nowhere part of this universe to save hell-deserving sinners like you and I. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, went on a rescue mission. And God's wrath, his just wrath that we sang about just a few moments ago, that was stored up for these rebels, was poured out on him. He died so they wouldn't. He who had given life had life taken from him for you and me. For our sin. And he bore the penalty. Of that sin. So that we wouldn't have to. The question of creation. What must the one be like. Who made all this. That question is answered. On that cross. That's what he's like. Cornerstone. He would leave the glory of heaven to go after hell-deserving sinners to give himself to die in their place so that they could be with him. See the cross and know what God is like. That is the marvel of his majesty. That is the marvel of marvels. One more from King David and then we'll wrap. The Lord's majestic restoration. Verse 5 and following. Yet David says you have made him. That's man. A little lower than the heavenly beings. That's the angels. And crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen. And also the beasts of the field. The birds of the heavens. And the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. 
After the Lord created the first man in Genesis 1, he blessed him and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it. He told Adam and Eve, have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so here the psalmist is marveling that God would give this responsibility to humans. God gave the responsibility to steward his creation to humans. He mentions sheep and oxen, the domesticated animals of the earth. The beasts of the field, those undomesticated animals. He mentions birds and fish and like. All kinds of animals mentioned in the Bible. Except cats. Cats are never mentioned in the Bible. I mean, there's all kinds of mentions of all kinds of different animals. Dragons even. Just didn't get around to mentioning cats. So I don't know what you're going to do with that. Then he says in verse 6, You have given him dominion over the works of of your hands. Dominion. What do you think of that verse? You feel like you have dominion over the earth? Someone's like, I can make my my dog roll over. Is that dominion? That you can... Make your dog play catch? Is that dominion? Are you dominating over the earth? You ever been caught in a tornado? Do you feel dominion then? A couple of summers ago, Mike and I were out in the ocean and a five foot shark swam in between us. You think that thing was looking at me being like, there's my dominator right there. Better stay away from him. When the earthquakes. And a couple hundred thousand Haitians die. Where is our dominion? When the sea swells and a quarter million Southeast Asians die, where is our dominion then? Some preachers say that God lost control at the fall and that humans have to take control back from the devil and give it back to God. And that, that's silly. It doesn't carry the weight of Scripture. But what does verse 6 mean then? That God has given dominion to men. The New Testament tells us. The Apostle Paul shows us that this dominion that was promised in Psalm 8-6 was given to Jesus at the resurrection. What the first man, Adam, Ruined through his rebellion, the Lord Jesus restored through his resurrection. If you still have a Bible open, go ahead and turn it to the New Testament. We'll end up on this passage. First Corinthians, the book of First Corinthians, or if you're Donald Trump, one Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter fifteen. That's page 961 of your pew Bible, if you're using one of them. We're going to read verses 20 down to 28, I think. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28. If you're, just listen for the language of Psalm 8 and the Apostle Paul's description of the effect of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For as a man, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Sound familiar? But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who has put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all and in all. The promise of Psalm 8 verse 6 was given to Christ. God has put all things under his feet. And he will bring all things under the lordship of his father. He will restore what was lost in Eden. God's kingdom will come. God's will will be done. Christ will have redeemed for his father a bride, the church, a people from every tribe and language and nation. And they will be with him in the paradise of paradises. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more dying. There'll be no more earthquakes and there'll be no more tsunamis. He will hand the kingdom over to God the Father. And in that moment, when heaven comes to earth, God will be all. Just one of the verses that's inspired our vision statement. We work, we serve, we give ourselves to this purpose, to making much of Jesus in Pequa, in Miami County, and by God's grace, to the ends of the earth, until God Until Christ is all and in all. I hope that's something you're you're willing to give your life for. Making Christ all. Both all in your life and all through your life. Friends, there's no other better thing to give your life to than that mission. My brothers got one thing right in that conversation. There is life, turns out, outside this planet. We are not alone in the universe. Extraterrestrial life has visited earth. And he will visit again. The first time he came, it was to give his life. To save hell-deserving sinners like you and I. And the next time he returns... It will be to judge. He will bring heaven with him. In the meantime, Cornerstone, we marvel at his work. We marvel at his name. We marvel at his glory. We marvel at his methods.
We marvel at his condescension. And one day, one day soon, we will marvel at this glorious restoration. We end today where we started in the last verse. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Marvel with me as we pray. Lord and glorious Father, thank you for sending your Son. Lord Jesus, thank you for setting aside those attributes of heaven in order to reach hell-deserving sinners of which I am foremost. Thank you for wrapping yourself in flesh. Thank you for going to the cross. Thank you for raising from the dead and shutting the mouth of sin and death. Would you cause the marvels of the Lord Jesus to well up in the hearts and minds of these, your people? Would you equip us to go from this place singing with the psalmist, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you want to stand to your feet, we're going to sing another song. What we like to do at the end of services as we wrap up is to give you an opportunity to confront your sins and to allow the Lord Jesus to forgive you of those sins. I'm going to read Psalm 8 one more time and I'm just going to ask you to take a moment as we sing this song and search your heart. I'm going to ask the Lord to bring to mind the things that you have done in rebellion against Him. And give you the opportunity to confess those sins, to put your faith in the Lord Jesus, and for him to heal you of your, of, of your sins and to forgive you of your unrighteousness. So would you listen as we reread, we reflect, and rejoice in these words. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower with, than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and all the, beasts, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth.